Well, guys, hi. It's so good to be here with you tonight. Um, like they said, my name is Erin Schaff, and you heard a couple things about me, but here are just a few more things that are important to know about who I am. So I'm a first-year intern here with Crew, and I work specifically with the sorority women here on campus. Yeah, love those girls. Um, I was Greek, like I said, myself as a student, so I love getting opportunities to get to know the Greek women on campus and to see what God is teaching them. Something else that's important to know, other than baby back ribs, I would consider chips and salsa to be a main food group in my diet, so that's important. Third, recently married the handsome Ray Schaff, who's another intern here with Crew, and have been learning more about basketball and strategy board games than I ever thought possible. <laughs> and last, you will always find me on the dance floor, and if you ask my husband, I have four signature moves that I repeat and combine over and over again. So those are a few things about me. Well, I'm very excited to be here with you tonight to continue our talk series entitled Lifelong, Vitality with God and Influence with People. We believe that by trusting God to develop certain character qualities in us, we will begin to look more like Christ, walk well with him, and help others to do the same for a lifetime. Over the past few weeks, we have learned about the qualities of love, togetherness and community, hope, and faith, and tonight, we will learn together how we see the character qualities of truth and grace in Jesus Christ and why it's important to pray that God would develop a balance of both in our own lives. Before we begin, please join me in prayer. God, I thank you for tonight and for the opportunity to gather as men and women and learn from the Bible together. We are nothing without you, so I pray that your spirit would work in each of us to help us understand your word and what it means for our life. Would you be glorified as I speak tonight? Amen. When I was in eighth grade, I told my friend that I wanted my hair curly for our eighth grade dance. What unfortunately resulted was really a poodle-like fro that was, I was a little unsure about. No, that's not me, but you get the idea. It was way too much volume for my reserved eighth grade self. However, when I asked my friends if they liked my hair, they assured me that it looked great. Looking back on pictures, though, it was not okay. That mane definitely should have been tamed. We've all felt that tension, though, right? Maybe in a similar hair emergency or in something more serious. What do you do when you're caught between telling the truth, even if it's difficult, and not being truthful because you're afraid of how someone might respond? Is it loving to let others go on thinking one thing is true, when in reality, telling the truth would give an opportunity to change for the better? Maybe you have a friend who behaves in a way that is contrary to how the Bible teaches, and you want to tell them that, but you don't know how. Or maybe you have a friend who comes across as rude or cold towards others, and you recognize that when they don't. How do you lovingly offer truth to them? And have you ever decided to tell the truth, but did it in a way that was too strong or void of grace, so the person receiving the truth felt judged and hurt? How do we balance that truth and grace in our everyday lives? Ideally, we would walk with both truth and grace and have a balance of both. Truth describes how things are 
or as something that would be accepted as fact or reality. God's truth leads us to what is real and what is accurate and is a framework for how to live. And our source of truth is the Bible. Truth also speaks to integrity. To live in truth is to be consistent in what we say and do and what we believe. In our context, grace is defined as an unmerited loving kindness towards others. It is something that is a free gift, unearned and undeserved. It says in John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John is describing Jesus here, the Son of God who became flesh, fully God and fully man. He's saying that he is full of grace and truth. So by the power of the Holy Spirit to be one with Christ is to be blessed with both, with Jesus as our model. But the problem is that we don't know how to live in both truth and grace. We have a tendency to misapply the truth in a way that leads to legalism and being good because we think that by doing so, we will earn the love of God. Or we think that we have license to live in whatever way we desire because after all, by God's grace, we've been forgiven. Basically, we want what we think is right for us And because of that, we define our own truth and we abuse grace by thinking we can live recklessly because there's grace. Truth and grace are such wonderful gifts of God and noble character traits. But because we live in a fallen world where what was originally created to be perfect has been distorted by the original sin of Adam, we often live in an imperfect balance of truth and grace, whether that's in our relationships with others our relationship with ourselves, or our relationship with God. So how many of you, as elementary school kids, loved recess during the school day? Yeah, I think we all did, right? One of my favorite parts of recess was playing on the teeter-totter. But you know you got salty (laughs) whenever who was on the other side was either much bigger or much smaller than you. No one wants to spend all the time on the ground or in the air rather than being able to teeter freely, am I right? Sometimes you even hit that sweet spot where the teeter-totter is perfectly straight and balanced. Imagine truth and grace on different sides of the teeter-totter. Can you think of moments when you've responded without truth, so there is only grace in your response? Or maybe you had an opportunity to extend grace to someone, but instead reacted passively, hiding how you really felt, or lashed out in anger or judgment and had no grace in your interaction. Without grace, truth makes us judgmental, angry, imprisoned, fake, disconnected, harsh, harmful to others, and compelled to perform. We have a tendency towards following the law out of fear and anxiety rather than out of a love for Christ and a desire to draw near to him. We may see God as a dictator or a severe judge that says things to us like, I'll love you only if you do what is true and what is right. He puts conditions on his love, and we think that our relationship and right standing before God hinges on how well we meet his conditions, how well we perform, and how well we live up to the perfect expectation of the law. On the flip side, grace without truth 
can be just as destructive in our lives and in the lives of those around us. At first glance, you might think that life without law and endless amounts of grace would seem ideal, right? But God puts the law in place because he knows what's best for his children and he wants them to experience everything in the way that he created it to be. The law also exposes our sin and acts as a mirror to show us when we fall short. And so when we ignore truth in our lives, we become directionless and ignorant to our sin. And because of that, we become apathetic about our need for Jesus and can't truly experience the gospel. We refuse to admit our faults before God or our need for God, and this creates walls between ourselves and God and ourselves and others. We may ignore our brokenness, blind to the pain and hurt that's in our lives, and eventually cause other people pain because of our own ignorance and pride. You can see clearly that grace without truth and truth without grace leads to destruction. It's just not how God designed it. So how do we, as imperfect followers of Christ, balance truth and grace, allowing us to walk faithfully with God for a lifetime? Well, tonight, we're going to look at a passage in the Gospel of John where Jesus sets the perfect example of extending truth and grace in his interaction with one woman. Please turn with me to John chapter 8, starting in verse 1 through verse 11, and the verses will also be up on the screen. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now before we go any further, it's important for you to know that there's something unique about this passage. It is widely believed that these verses were not in the original manuscripts of John's Gospel, meaning... When John himself wrote down the words that the Holy Spirit spoke to him, the story was not included. And because the story is not found in the earliest manuscripts, we need to be careful about using it to establish absolute truth. However, since the character of Jesus and the principles included in this story are consistent with truth that we see in other places in the rest of the Bible, it is useful for study. So what we learn about Jesus in this passage is true, because it doesn't add any new information that isn't already in the Bible, nor does it contradict anything said anywhere else. So looking back at our passage, let's focus on the first few verses. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. 
the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. So Jesus is in Jerusalem, and he's teaching in the temple. That means that he most likely had a pretty big crowd of people around him. And all of a sudden, interrupting Jesus' teaching, these scribes and Pharisees walk into the temple, and they have a woman with them. The scribes and the Pharisees were experts in the law. And as they bring this woman in the midst of the crowd of people that are listening to Jesus teach, they announce that she was caught in the act of adultery. I don't know about you, but when I'm caught in the midst of doing something wrong, there's always an element of shame and embarrassment and just a strong desire to run and hide and avoid anyone and everyone. And this woman had just been in bed with a man who was not her husband, and these religious leaders busted in, caught her in the act, dragged her out, and then announced her wrongdoing in front of an entire crowd of people. Talk about mortifying. Now, Someone announcing your middle school crush in front of your lunch table or an instance when you tripped and fell in the dining hall has nothing on what this woman is experiencing. Not only could she have been literally unclothed and vulnerable in the midst of a crowd, but she is absolutely exposed and publicly shamed for the sin that she was caught in. And as if it couldn't get any worse, the law that God gave to Moses specified the penalty for adultery is death. And not just any type of death, but a public stoning. And this means that this woman would be buried to her waist in dirt, her hands would be bound behind her, and large rocks would be thrown at her until she was dead. And there's no way around it. She was caught in the act. She is guilty. Well, continuing in verse 5, the Pharisees and scribes say to Jesus, Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Can you just imagine the hush that comes over the crowd? Just moments before, Jesus was teaching, and there was probably a general hum as they respond to what he's saying and talking amongst themselves, and now the whole mood has shifted to one of curiosity and question as they wait to see how Jesus responds. You should understand that the law of Moses that the Pharisees and scribes are quoting is very specific. Both Leviticus and Deuteronomy in the Bible explain what should happen to those caught in the act of adultery. It says in Leviticus 20.10 that if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. And Deuteronomy reads similarly. It's clear in these verses that adultery is a serious sin punishable by death. But these verses also say that both the man and the woman should be punished. So where is the man? Why is the woman alone before the crowd? You see here that the Pharisees and scribes, who know the law to a T, are ignoring part of the law in order to find a way to make Jesus look like a fraud. Continuing in verse 6, it says just that. This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. They are looking for anything they can to accuse Jesus. If they really cared about the truth, the adulterous man would be with the woman before Jesus. But they're simply trying to get Jesus in trouble. It also says that he bent down and wrote on the ground. 
We don't know exactly what he writes here. Some speculate that it could have been the law of Moses in regards to adultery, or a list of sins of the Pharisees or the scribes or the sins of the woman, but we just don't know. At this point, this woman is just waiting for her verdict. She deserves the punishment as stated in the law. She committed adultery. So it seems like there are only two options, right? Jesus can either condemn her and obey the law and sentence this woman to death, or he breaks the law and lets her go. But then what authority does the law have? Continuing in verse 7, we see Jesus respond to the Pharisees and the scribes. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. The Pharisees and the scribes cannot fool Jesus. He sees right through them. And so Jesus, in his perfect wisdom, shows the Pharisees, the scribes, and the crowd around him that they have all been caught in sinfulness. They can't condemn this woman because they too deserve condemnation. They're all guilty. And because they were too wrapped up in their moralism and their heartless hypocrisy, they were no longer able to be in Jesus' presence. Only the woman was able to stay face-to-face with the Son of God. And now we see how Jesus responds to her, a guilty adulteress who has disobeyed the law and is now sitting exposed before the holy and perfect Jesus. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. In this moment, Jesus does something extraordinary. He knows the law, and he knows that she's guilty of breaking the law, but he doesn't condemn her. He's not lessening the command to her by saying, adultery's okay, keep on doing that. But he's saying, I see what you've done, and I'm forgiving you totally. I'm extending favor and love to you in a circumstance where you haven't done anything to earn it. In fact, you've sinned against me. He's extending her grace. And he's not extending it at the expense of truth because he calls her at the end of verse 11 to sin no more. He's saying to her, Woman, I have more for you than adultery can offer. I am more satisfying and lasting than the pleasure you can receive from a life of adultery. I created you for a life where you can delight in me and know me, and a relationship with me is the best gift I can offer you. He's not saying, you owe me now, and because you have earned my love, sin no more. He's not saying, if you commit adultery again, you won't be my daughter anymore, so sin no more. No. He's saying, because I love you, and I know what's best for you, and I want you to know me, sin no more. Jesus was the only one in the crowd who could, in perfect righteousness and holiness, require this woman's death. And he was the only one who could, in perfect righteousness, pardon her. And he did. 
And the reason he could let her walk free without paying the punishment for her sin is because later, Jesus himself would pay for her adultery. He'd be crucified in her place and die for every sin she had committed, is committing, and would commit. And the same is true for each one of us. So how do you relate to this story? Are you like the scribes and Pharisees who know the law and know the truth? Outside you practice righteousness and know the right thing to say and do, but you have to leave the presence of God because you don't know how to let the grace of Jesus set you free of your imperfection and brokenness. Are you more concerned with getting it right or being right than being in a relationship with Jesus? Would you rather have your life be a facade and pretend you have it all together instead of being exposed for who you really are but miss out on the grace God freely offers to those who acknowledge their need for him? Or maybe you're caught in a pattern of sin where you commit adultery against God meaning there are aspects of your life that you worship more than the creator of the universe, and you run back to those things over and over again for satisfaction. You think that you'll really be happy if you get A's in all your classes, so you pour yourself into your studies in order to be seen as successful. Or maybe there's a relationship in your life that consumes all of your time. You do everything you can to spend time with that person and even change things about who you are or how you act in order to please them. Or maybe you desire the next gadget, the next gadget or designer item. You dream about it and have to have the newest and biggest and best. Your worth correlates with the stuff you have and you run to the material things of this world for your happiness. You might think that since grace is freely given to you, you can just continue to live in this cycle knowing that you'll be forgiven. But you're not able to experience the life that God created for you because you're busy living for your own motives and purposes. You're missing out on sweet fellowship with God and ignoring the truth of the gospel. Author and pastor Paul Tripp says, Grace doesn't excuse your sin, Rather, it pays the price for what is inexcusable. I personally know and understand the balance between truth and grace is vital because I've seen the way that the imbalance has played out in my relationship with Ray. Like I said earlier, my hubby and I recently got married in November, so after about five months, I'm sure you're all thinking I'm a professional wife by now, and you'd mostly be right. I like to think that I know the truth and I'm quick to reveal it to Ray while also extending grace. And although that's sometimes true, there are many instances when I react selfishly rather than graciously. For example, when my boo thing leaves his dishes in the sink instead of putting them in the dishwasher or puts his dirty clothes on top of the hamper or right next to the hamper instead of inside the hamper, there's, sometimes there's a part of me that gets a little bit judgmental and self-righteous and confronts them in a way that maybe is not super helpful. Or I say nothing at all and grumble about it under my breath so he doesn't even realize something is bothering me. Those might seem like silly little examples, but in those moments, I am not walking in both truth and grace. I'm not being truthful about his action, how his actions make me feel, and I'm not being gracious as I confront him. 
So we can see throughout Scripture that Jesus perfectly lives by truth and grace. But how do we do that in our own lives? Because of Jesus and the way that he stood by truth while also extending grace to us, we are now free to do that to ourselves and to others, whether that's our roommates, family, friends, or classmates. Here's one example that sticks out from my own life. During my senior year of college, I selfishly said something really hurtful to one of my friends. And rather than responding in anger or simply ignoring what I said and pretending it didn't bother her, she asked if we could talk about it. Through that conversation, I was able to explain the feelings behind what I said and the root of where those hurtful words came from and apologize. And instead of feeling condemnation from her, which I probably deserved, she extended me grace and forgiveness and preached the gospel to me. So in that moment, we were both able to be in awe of who Jesus is and what he did in our place that allowed her to extend me grace. What a sweet relationship. What would it look like to point people in your life towards Christ by extending both truth and grace, even when it is difficult? Because of my friend's boldness and confidence in Christ's perfection, she was able to approach me, even as an imperfect woman herself, and we both came out of that conversation seeing Jesus and his character more clearly. On our own, we will continue to live in a destructive imbalance of grace and truth that keeps us from good fellowship with God. It's only through the power of the Holy Spirit and praying that those qualities would be redeemed in us that we're able to walk in both truth and grace. Our model is Jesus Christ, who came to earth and faced the same temptations that we face every day, but lived in perfect accordance with the truth of the law. And rather than condemning and judging those who are not able to live up to the perfect expectation of the law, he was condemned in our place on the cross where he had all of God's wrath for the sins of man, past, present, and future, poured out on him. Which means there's no more wrath left to be poured out on us. We are guilty and rightfully deserve the punishment that the law commands. But God knew that we were in need of a rescuer and would stop at nothing to restore a relationship with his people. As if that wasn't gracious enough, by taking our rightful place on the cross and bearing the punishment we deserve, a glorious substitution took place. And now, when God looks at those who have accepted this as truth and who trust in Jesus, he sees the righteousness and perfection of his son. When he looks at us, he sees his sons and daughters who are holy and righteous, pure and worthy, adequate and beloved. What a perfect picture of grace. Paul Tripp says it this way, Grace exposes you to the penetrating light of truth and then covers what has been exposed with the forgiving sacrifice of the cross. We need the truth to expose us for who we really are so that we can run to Jesus, who sees exactly who we are, but still says, I want you in my family. In Romans 8, 1 through 4, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, 
For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Because of Jesus, we have the privilege of extending grace to those around us, even when they don't deserve to be shown grace. But we also should be sure to speak truth into their lives Because through that, they will see more of their need for Christ and he will be glorified. The reality is that without the power of the Holy Spirit, we have no chance of being men and women characterized by both truth and grace. Our tendency is to define our own truth and to abuse grace in order to live the lives we want and think are best for us. Thankfully, we have a Savior named Jesus who both walked in truth and extended grace perfectly so that when we fall short, he looks at you, sees your mess and your imperfection, but because of his amazing grace, he says, my son, my daughter, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for the perfect example of truth and grace that we see in your son, Jesus. We pray that you would expose the areas of our life in which we don't walk in truth or walk in grace. And by the power of your spirit, would you redeem that in us? We thank you for the way that Jesus upheld truth perfectly and still died in our place in order to extend us grace despite our imperfection and sinful nature. Thank you for the way you overcame death by dying and raising from the dead so that in you we can have true life. We love you. Amen.